So we're going to be jumping back into our Acts series, the book of Acts. Uh, you may have noticed a bit of a pattern. I often start with an inspiring story or an interesting story. Uh, I apologize in advance. I'm going to start with actually a bit of a discouraging story to kick things off. Mahatma Gandhi, many of you would know who Gandhi is. Uh, in his autobiography, he wrote that when he was a student in England, he actually read the Gospels, and he seriously considered Christianity. He thought, man, Christianity seems like the real solution to the caste system in India, where people are divided into different categories. And he thought, man, this seems, this seems like there's a hope there. It seems like there's, there's something here. And so he decided to go to a church, a Christian church for answers. He thought, hey, I've got questions. Let's find some answers. And so he went to this church, but as soon as he got in there, he walked in the doors and he was met by an usher who refused to seat him. The usher said, oh, uh, you can't have a seat in here. You should go worship with your own people. And Gandhi thought to himself, man, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And he famously wrote this, said this, it would be up on the screen. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That is a heartbreaking story on so many levels, and unfortunately all too common. Maybe the most heartbreaking of all is that it is actually the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Right? It'd be different if it was a, a misinterpretation or a fine line thing, but it is the absolute opposite of what the Bible says about who the gospel, who the good news is for. Consider even the book of Acts that we're going through, Acts 1.8. If you, uh, we've, uh, we've probably referenced it every single sermon, but Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, that's pretty far-reaching, Right? And we've seen this unfold, that the gospel goes beyond city, goes beyond region, goes beyond province, state, country, to the ends of the earth. That's a lot of people. So the good news of the gospel is good news for all. And so right away, that's our big idea this morning. The gospel is for all. So kids, I want you to remember that. The gospel is for all. Everybody say it after me. The gospel is for all, okay? We've internalized it. We said it three times, so it's locked in. The gospel is for all, or as I've titled the sermon, Grace for Every Race, which I can't take credit for. I'll give Tony Marita, pastor and author, credit for that title. I can't steal it with an honest heart. But it's a great title, Grace for Every Race. What a rhyme. The gospel is for all. This is such an important message for us today. This is such an important message for us in general. Right? Think of this year and the racial divisions that we see. Think of this year and the political divisions that we see. Think of this year and the opinion differences that we see. Right? But this isn't a 2020 issue. This is an always issue. Look at Gandhi. Right? Look at so many others. This is also a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal passage in the book of Acts. This is a, a pivotal moment. Right, we see God's mission unfolding. And the passage that we're going to be looking at today is 
the power of the gospel going beyond ethnicity and race. The, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. So this is a huge moment. The rest of the book of Acts is really this story continuing to unfold. If the gospel is for all. Romans 1.16, very popular verse. You'll see it on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we've got a big uh, passage to go through this morning. 77 verses. I am no mathematician. Anyone who knows me, that's probably not an accurate number, but don't spend the rest of the sermon calculating. But we got a lot of verses to go through this morning. This might be a new record for me. And so we got a lot to go. So here's a rough outline so you can kind of track with us because we're going to bounce around a little bit through these verses. We're going to be looking at a bunch of stories so we're going to be looking at the story of a fisherman, the story of a soldier, the story of a savior, the story of salvation, and then the story of you. I would encourage you to do this all the time, but specifically for these big passages. I would encourage you to read this passage later today. Uh, read it this afternoon. Uh, read it maybe with your family for devotions. Read it before you go to bed just to really lock it in and internalize these truths because we are going to be cruising through at a pretty good rate of speed. And I apologize in advance if this is a little longer than usual. But I think there's value in seeing this whole story, seeing the entire arc of the narrative. Right? We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. So let's dive in with the story of a fisherman. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be finishing Acts chapter 9, all of Acts chapter 10, and then part of chapter 11. Okay, buckle up. But right away, Acts chapter 9, starting in verses 32... Three words in, we see this. Now, as Peter. All right, do we remember Peter? Peter was a fisherman. The story of a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. He was a close friend, a follower, and a disciple of Jesus. And we know that Peter had his faults, right? He was a bit of a hothead. He was a coward at times. But we've seen God working in this man, Peter, working in the heart of this fisherman, to the point now where he plays a major role in the book of Acts. He is a key leader in the church. And I think when we first talked about Peter a while back, uh, I used the expression, a turtle on a fence post. Right? You know if you see a turtle on a fence post, he didn't get there by himself. And so this is Peter. God is actively working in Peter's life uh, for him to be doing this work. And so he's preaching. We see him persecuted and we see him persevering. That's a good alliteration there. Uh, and, and persisting, persevering, we got, anyway. He's at work. Peter is doing a lot of stuff. Right? We see him participating and being a part of miraculous events of healing. And then Luke, the author of the book of Acts, diverts from Peter for a little bit, and that's what we've looked at the last number of weeks, about Saul, the story of Saul, Philip the evangelist. We've kind of diverted, but now we're back to Peter. And we see the same thing. Peter continuing the same preaching work, the same uh, healing, mercy work. God is continuing to work in him and through him. And he's preparing him for what comes next. So let's read Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, 
Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. This is a very similar story to what we saw in Acts chapter 3 with the lame beggar. But let's not brush past these healing stories, these miraculous events. This is crazy. This guy's paralyzed. Peter shows up, says, Jesus Christ heals you. Says, get up, make your bed. And he's healed. That's crazy. Right? I know I can like skim over these like nothing. You get used to reading miraculous things when you read the Bible. But God is powerful. That's, that's a crazy story. And a little bit of uh, out-of-context work that the parents of any teenagers can do here, you can say, rise and make your bed, kids. It's in the Bible. Right? But I love the way Peter does this. He, he's done this in the other miracles he's been a part of. He instantly flips the script and points to Jesus. Right? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Not Peter heals you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And we can imagine a similar pattern of Acts. This draws a crowd. People hear what happens. Peter preaches, and people are saved. And we see, and they turn to the Lord. So similar pattern. Next, we see a complementary story in the next eight verses. Uh, chapter 9, verses 36 to 43. Let's read that. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I would stick with Tabitha. She was full of good works. Single laugh, that was good. Uh, no. Uh, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. So we see the same pattern. Peter shows up, right? They must have heard, oh, Peter's in town. Let's go track him down. Man, I can't stop rhyming. Um, <laughs> Peter <laughs> prays. He demonstrates his reliance on God. He prays. He relies on God. And Tabitha is restored to life. Again, don't brush past this. This is huge. Dead. Alive. Right? These are not anecdotal stories. These are stories of God's power being demonstrated and the gospel advancing. Again, verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Right? The gospel is on the move. Now, I, I'll, to be, give you full transparency, I almost stopped here. I thought maybe this is a very preachable section, these healings, the work of Peter, the work of Jesus through Peter. But I think it's interesting how these stories set us up. These miracles uh, set the stage for the next miracle, salvation for the Gentiles. 
Right? So let's skip ahead. We're going to stay with the story of a fisherman. So we're going to skip a couple verses here. We're going to go to the next time we touch base with Peter. Chapter 10, verse 9. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. We're going to see how God continues to prepare Peter for the work that he has. So partway through verse 9, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, if your eyes scanned a little bit further into verse 17, you see that Peter was inwardly perplexed. Right? Peter was confused. Right? It's kind of a confusing vision. He's saying, What's, what's going on here? And I don't know what was going through Peter's mind. I don't know if he thought he was maybe being tested, but he says no to God, essentially. He says, by no means, Lord. Right? To kill and eat certain animals was forbidden for them, for the Jews. And so Peter was really wrestling with, okay, what's going on here? God shows him this vision three times until Peter hears clearly what God has made clean, do not call common. Now Peter, if you know Peter, has a bit of a trend of denial three times followed by affirmation. But we see the vision going three times. And what Peter is hearing is that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. And so Christian, who is it that you know you need to share the gospel with? Who is it that you know God is putting on your heart to share this good news with? And what are you saying to God? Are you saying, by no means, Lord? Are you putting up things that uh, you think, oh, there's no way that I could do this. There's no way he would ask me to do this. Consider for a second another parallel story, Jonah. God says, go preach to the Ninevites. What, What does he do? By no means, Lord. And ironically, the same port city of Joppa, right? He hightails it. And so maybe you won't have a vision or a dream, but what's God calling you to do? We've run into this every passage so far in the book of Acts over the last number of weeks. Who is God putting on your heart? Who do you know you need to show and share Jesus' love to? Let's look at Peter as an example. We see him praying. Now, prayer does not always lead to dramatic visions, but God does use those who humbly seek him. So go to God in prayer. So soon we're going to hear the miracle of Cornelius' conversion, but in a sense, this is Peter's conversion. He's getting a a taste of what's to come. Uh, He's not grasping the whole story, but it's, it's a nibble, right? A nibble enough to know that there's fish in the pond. So we're going to come back to Peter in a minute, but let's look at the story of a soldier. We've looked at the story of a fisherman. Let's look at the story of a soldier. We're going to backtrack a little bit to chapter 10, verse 1. 
At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So a centurion was in charge of 100 men. Uh, Centurions were fairly well off and respected. They made about five times what a foot soldier would make. And so he was was well off. He was respected. Verse 2 says, He was also a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. That's interesting. I feel like that little resume bit, I look at that, I don't even feel like I'm looking in the mirror. Like this guy is, he's next level, right? He's praying all the time. He's giving generously. He fears the Lord. But it's an interesting thing to note that just because he's religious doesn't mean he's regenerate. Right? He's doing all the right things, but he's still a sinner. He still needs the gospel. He's a good guy, but he needs the good news. My very first uh, fire, when I got hired on the fire department, the first fire I ever had, I've told a story where I tried to drive a steel bar through a concrete ceiling before. Same fire. And I told you things went pretty smoothly up to that point when I tried to drive the steel bar through the ceiling. It was a bit of a misnomer because what actually happened was we got to that fire and we were, okay, the fire's on whatever floor it was and we knew which room. So we knew, okay, here's where it's going to be. And we followed our procedures by the book. And our procedures lay out where we connect our hose to the hose cabinets you see in high rises. So we hooked it up. We were going to the room. Everything was going perfectly according to plan, following the rules. We get to the room, bust open the door, and I go to go, so the Okay, maybe this is too much detail. I'm in the hallway facing this way. Here's the door, and the kitchen's on fire over here, okay? But there's a big wall in between. So we bust in the door, and I go to go around the corner with the hose, and ugh, we ran out of hose. There was no hose left. Right? We had maxed out the distance of the hose that we brought up. And so I'm stuck at the door, and I can't get it around the corner to put the fire out. We had followed every single rule right out of our policies and procedures, but we missed something really key. We missed getting the water on the hot stuff, right? We missed the big deal. And so, don't worry, it was, it was a very quick switch to go to a different hose cabinet and the place was fine, and then I drove, tried to drive the steel bar through the concrete ceiling. But you're losing a lot of faith in my firefighting skills, I can tell. But I think that illustration is helpful to, to consider a guy like Cornelius. He was following all the rules. He was ticking all the boxes, but he was missing something huge. He was missing the gospel. And so maybe you're here this morning and you feel like there's something missing in your life. Maybe you feel like something isn't right. God was clearly doing something in Cornelius' heart. He knew something was missing. And God gives him a vision in this moment. So let's look at uh, verse 3 to 8. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So God is explicitly and very obviously working in Cornelius' heart. 
God does work to draw people to himself. And so, if you're sitting there with questions, I'd ask you, what has God done to bring you to where you are today? Think of your upbringing, your vocation, your past, your present. What is God doing in you? What is God doing in your heart? Are you curious about the gospel, this good news that we won't stop talking about? Are you curious about what happens after we die? Do you have questions about morality or ethics? Do you have questions like Gandhi of why sometimes Christians' words and actions don't line up? Good for you for being here this morning and confronting those things. But maybe you feel that tug in your heart, but you resist, and you've been resisting for a long time. I want to encourage you with this, that just because you're ignoring God doesn't mean God is ignoring you. He may be working in your heart right now to have you here to hear the story of Cornelius being saved, not by religion, but by an encounter with a Savior. And so Cornelius, he knows something's up, right? He gets this vision. And so what does he do? He sends a couple men to go and find this Peter guy. And so these guys run into Peter. Peter comes out and interacts with them. And we'll skip ahead to verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23. And so he, Peter, invited them into, uh, to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is a big step. Peter invites these guys into his home, or, or Simon the Tanner's home, where he's staying. But this is a good example of hospitality, gospel-driven hospitality to those who are different. So I have a question for you. Who are you afraid of showing hospitality to? Now, I know in the COVID era, maybe there's a lot more people we're afraid of than usual, but I, I really mean that. I want you to think about who is that person that you, would, you wouldn't invite into your house? You know? Are they just in some other category, racially or status? Who is that person that you wouldn't show hospitality to? As I said at the beginning, the Bible gives us no latitude uh, to put up these socioeconomic or racial divisions. So verse 24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius was respected by the Jews. Uh, We see that uh, down in verse 22. He was respected by the Jews, but still, this wasn't wasn't right. This wasn't okay. Uh, Caesarea was kind of like little Rome. Uh, If we think of like a little Italy or a Chinatown, this was, Caesarea was little Rome. And so this was not the place to be as a Jew. You were the minority, right? You're going and interacting with a Roman soldier, a Gentile. This is is kind of crazy. This is a radical thing. And in the next few verses, we get a double dish of humility served up. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. So first we see a Roman soldier bowing down to a Galilean fisherman. Fishermen were not 
Uh, if, if the Roman soldier was well-respected and wealthy, the fishermen were not. And a Galilean, even amongst the Jews, was kind of like the equivalent of a hillbilly. Right? They could recognize them even by the way they spoke. And so Peter's not the man here. He probably hasn't been treated this way much in his life. And the soldier bows down. So first Cornelius demonstrates humility to Peter. But then Peter gives it right back to him. Says, stand up. I'm just a man. Right? Peter could have taken that moment to just kind of soak it in a little bit. Right? We know that's kind of his nature. But he doesn't. He is beginning to see God's plan for the nations. Right? He got that nibble. He knows there's fish in the pond. Now he's getting a bite. Right? He's starting to understand. So verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Peter addresses the elephant in the room. He shouldn't be there. Peter is starting to really tie this together, right? He is drawing the connection between these events, the vision, the circumstances that brought him here, right? He got a nibble. He's got a bite. Now he's reeling it in. And so Cornelius here, when when Peter says, why am I here? Cornelius gives him the old gospel alley-oop. He sets him up with a perfect question, saying, I sent for you at once. This is down in verse 33. I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Right? Again, we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch when he was saying, uh, I'm reading the Bible. I just need someone to explain it to me. Like, what an open door for evangelism, right? Peter gets served up again, the gospel alley-oop here. It's perfect. And what does Peter do? We've looked at the story of a fisherman. We've looked at the story of a soldier. Peter tells the story of a Savior. The story of a Savior. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter tells the story of a savior, but he leads with the crux of his message, which is God shows no partiality, right? Every nation, 
And then what does he do? He follows it up with the gospel. He preaches the whole gospel, but differently than he's preached before. We've, we've seen Peter's sermons earlier in Acts. Right? But when he preached to the Jews, he quoted a lot from the Old Testament. He referenced things that they would know and understand. Right? Here he preaches differently. But I want to be clear, just because he preaches in a different way, it doesn't mean he preaches a different message. He proclaims Jesus. And he proclaims a number of key gospel truths that we need to uh, internalize and understand in our own proclamation and our own telling the story of a Savior. He says Jesus was anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit in verse 38. It also says in verse 38, he was doing good and healing. It says he died a horrific death in verse 39, rose on the third day, verse 40, appeared to witnesses, verse 41, commanded others to preach, verse 42, and that Jesus would be the judge of all and that salvation is in Christ alone, verse 42 and 43. This is a good reminder for us as Christians to know and share the gospel. Peter did. He knew what the gospel was. He knew this good news, and he was ready to share it. He later writes in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Right? And he models that right here. Sure, he got a big lob up, but if you look for it and pray for it, you're going to get lob ups too. But be prepared to give an answer to the hope that's in you. Right? How do you do that? You ask a really simple question. Do you know the gospel? It's a good question, right? Do you know the gospel? And if, all right, you tick that one. Yeah, I know the gospel. I know the good news. Can you explain the gospel clearly? This is why in our membership interviews, one of the most important questions we can ask here, uh, one way or another, is essentially, what's the gospel? What is the answer for the hope that's in you? And we don't ask that question to stump someone or to get you in the weeds in the minutia and whatever. It's to, to ask this question, right? To give a gospel alley-oop. What's the gospel? What's the good news? What's your deal? What are you all about? The gospel. So Peter's life was changed by this good news. It was changed with an encounter with Jesus. Right? The gospel was his thing. So make the gospel your thing. And so what's happening here? The gospel is spreading to the Gentiles. This is, this is nuts. I can't even think of a parallel in our time, but the gospel is going beyond where they thought the gospel could go. And all of a sudden, the gospel becomes the unifying factor for these people. Right? This is what's breaking down those walls. Right? The Jews are still Jews. The Gentiles are still Gentiles. So this is not uniformity, but this is unity. Unity that overcomes these divisions. God is giving them something beyond powerful to be united by, beyond social class or anything else that they can put up. So we've seen the story of a fisherman, the story of a soldier, the story of a savior, and now the story of salvation. The story of salvation. Reading again, verse 44. When Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now there's a lot that happens in these four verses. There's a lot going on here. But namely, the Holy Spirit is poured out, right? And then the baptism of the Gentiles. Now Jesus promised his followers that a helper would come. Right? That they would receive the Holy Spirit's power for the mission, as we looked at in chapter 1, verse 8. Now God shows that the Gentiles are part of this story, right? It's clear that the Holy Spirit coming, right, indwelling them, they are on the mission. They are part of the family. And what's more, it's evidenced in the exact same way that it was evidenced for the Jews. Right? Speaking in tongues. So we don't have to read this passage as a prescription of what has to happen when you become a Christian but it demonstrates that the Gentiles are welcomed into the family. There's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. So Peter's understanding of this, it's confirmed in verse 47. He says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Right? He's got it. We're talking about that fish. He's, it's already filleted up. He's, he, he understands. He's grasped the whole thing. Okay, baptism is the outward sign of an inward change. It proclaims what's happened in your life. It's saying, by being baptized, you're saying, I'm dying to my old self. I'm being buried symbolically, and I'm being raised again in Christ. Baptism is an incredibly uniting, incredibly uniting thing. It's the first outward sign of membership in the new covenant. It identifies ourself with Jesus and his people. So that's why here at HGC, baptism is a requirement for membership. And so if you're a Christian, we can take away a couple things here. Do you grasp the Holy Spirit's power in you? Now, that's a big loaded question. But if we look at verses uh, like Romans chapter 8, verses 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Don't think of the Holy Spirit as some force or an accessory. The Holy Spirit is a person, a gift, a helper. So pray to God. Think about what that means. What are the implications of that as a Christian? The Holy Spirit indwells us to teach us, to convict us, to empower us, to intercede for us, and to give us life. What about baptism? Are you a Christian this morning here, and you haven't been baptized as a believer? We would love to talk to you about that. Uh, we can make that happen. Woodland is wonderful, and they let people be baptized here, so we, we can do that. And so if you want to be baptized, come talk to us. We'd love to explain uh, more about what baptism is all about. And so the rest of this passage that we see is Peter reporting back to the church. He goes back to the church and he gets some pushback. The church says, you went to see who? Now I'll tell you, some caution is good. And I won't criticize it completely. Some caution is good. It's good and right to be sure, especially these major pivotal moments. It's good and right to make sure that uh, someone's idea of 
or someone's conversion is legitimate to the best of our abilities. To give someone a false hope in conversion is maybe the most evil thing we could ever do for someone. And so this is why we take care in our membership process. This is why we uh, ask important questions to make sure someone is saved uh, to the best of our abilities before they're baptized. Not to be unloving or judgmental, but quite the opposite, to actually show love to those people, to demonstrate love by taking great care. Now, Peter responds to this pushback with a summary of everything that happened. So in your afternoon or evening read through this, read through it again, right? Look for similarities, look for what seem like differences, reordering, just have a good read through. But he summarizes very fully what went down. But let's jump in at verse uh, 15, chapter 11, verses 15. It says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When, we had heard these thi- uh, when they had heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who are we to stand in God's way for his mission to the nations? God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so we see this through the story of a fisherman, the story of a soldier, story of a savior, the story of salvation. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so what does that mean for you? The story of you. The gospel is the power of salvation for all. Now that's not universalism. That doesn't mean that all will be saved regardless of the way you respond to this message. But you can be sure if you're sitting here right now or you're listening in on the live stream, that there is nothing in your background, nothing that you've done, nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ if you accept this free gift of grace. If you have questions, ask them. If you have doubts, challenge them. If you have fears, face them. Consider what God is doing in your heart, like Cornelius. What is God saying to you this morning? Please don't leave without talking to someone if you're feeling that tug on your heart. We would love to talk to you more about it, but know that we don't do that from a high horse waving our finger. As D.T. Niles famously said, it's, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Right? Like Peter, his heart was changed by the gospel. His life was changed by this good news, the story of a Savior, the story of salvation. Right? And we would love to share that good news with you. I could point you to dozens of people in here right now who have had that encounter. And so if you're a Christian here this morning and you're not from Jewish heritage, praise God that he saved the Gentiles. I think we can put ourselves in the wrong shoes sometimes here. But praise God that he saved the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. Praise God that he saved you. Let's respond with praise 
The gospel is for all. This is certainly a unique moment in salvation history, but we can learn so much. And one thing we can take away is the church can and should celebrate unity in diversity. The church can and should celebrate unity in diversity. Grace for every race. Civil rights leader John Perkins writes this. There is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. There is no institution more equipped and capable to bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. And we can see it's hard work even looking at Uh, Peter, who's been a bit of a model for us this morning, in Galatians 2, Paul rebukes Peter because after this, Peter refuses to eat with the Gentiles. He doesn't learn his lesson perfectly, right? And you know what? We might not perfectly either. It's hard work, but it needs to start here. So Heritage Grace Church, let's do the hard work to be a church where the gospel is our thing. And we are constantly reminding ourselves that the gospel is for all. And so let's close with an exhortation from John Piper. It says this, Let us wash our minds and our mouths of all racial slurs and ethnic put-downs and be done with all the alienating behaviors. And let's be the good Samaritan for some ethnic outcast. And let's be the Christ for some untouchable leper. And let's be the Peter for some waiting Cornelius. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Bible, for your word, for the stories that we find in it, the story of a fisherman, the story of a soldier, the story of a savior, the story of salvation, and what it means for us, God, the story for us. So I pray that we would apply these truths to our heart, to our lives, that we wouldn't just see this as knowledge that fills our heads and puffs us up, but that we would do the hard work to make the gospel our thing, to seek reconciliation, bring transformation, and to be the good Samaritan for the ethnic outcast, to be the Christ for an untouchable leper, and to be the Peter for some waiting Cornelius. God, by your power and and by your strength, give us the ability to do this, not for our glory, but for your glory alone. I pray that that would be true of this church, that that would be an identifying factor for us, and that we would be unified by the gospel. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.